Welcome to another of the UberWeb Poetry Foundation podcasts, all avant-garde, all the time. I'm Kenneth Goldsmith, founding editor of UberWeb. In this podcast, we're going to begin a new series that focuses on the sounds of regionalism. Each city has its own sound. Each city in each time frame has its own avant-garde. So there's a lot of material to work with. We'll be starting with the sounds of Los Angeles in the 1970s. And uh, future episodes will include the sounds of Vancouver, the sounds of London, the sounds of Paris, and the future sounds of Beijing. So today we're going to be focusing on the uh, sounds of Los Angeles, mostly from artists that came of age during the 60s and then flowered into their maturity as artists in the 70s in L.A. Uh, it was a very, very vital art scene driven by the activity around Cal Arts, the recently founded art school with uh, Walt Disney money. And uh, the chief head of Cal Arts was John Baldessari, who brought in all sorts of crazy young talent to produce a very fervent and active stew. A lot of these artists were influenced by television, by Hollywood, and by pop culture, and they brought that all to the altar of high art and created some of the most fascinating and impure and very, very funny sound works that uh, are hosted here on UberWeb. Hi, my name's Chris Burden. My address is 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. I can't legally do this, but let's imagine that I asked everybody who's listening tonight to send me money, just to send it directly to me. And this is the uh, visual artist Chris Burden, who uh, got on the air on March 21st of 1979 and did a illegal action. He asked listeners to imagine sending him money. He didn't actually ask the listeners to send him money because that would have been illegal. So as a piece of conceptual art, he said, try to imagine sending me money. Now think of the millions of people in this country. Now if every one of them could somehow be asked or suggested that they send money to me, this would be fantastic. And I think everybody could probably afford a 25 cents. That's all, that's all I'm really trying to consider is 25 cents. Well, in fact, it was so illegal what he was doing, even with the uh, imagination aspect of it, that in fact this uh, piece was, was cut short and was canned out of fear of litigation and has only recently been reissued. It goes on for an hour. Can you conceive of this idea? I don't work for anybody. I'm not part of a charity. Uh, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just trying to have you conceive of the idea of everyone who's listening tonight, who's tuning in, or who's tuned out and is tuning in again, to send me some money. Think about this. If you could just send me a little something. My name again, Chris Burden, A23. It's a very risky piece, but Chris Burden was well-known for making risky artworks. He had himself shot. He had himself crucified to the back of a Volkswagen. And perhaps my favorite piece of his was when he uh, had himself wrapped in a black burlap bag and thrown out onto the middle of a freeway at night. I seen a long time ago in the base boy at the Barton Bay, my Captain Bailey Constantine. And this is the sounds of Paul McCarthy 
who was another of the CalArts faculty, uh, McCarthy, a uh, performance and video artist later to become a sculptor, made these outrageous and very, very bawdy videos and performances. He becomes a big buffoon. He puts on a big uh, belly and starts stumbling around as a painter. He's a character. He's drunken. He's the uh, Dionysian-style character. In this piece that we're listening to, Boston Bay, he becomes a very dirty and perverted sea captain. Captain Bailey burning there, burning up his fucking dare, and burning down in Canada door, picking Pino one and day, up and down and up and down across the Barnum Bay. Using the mode of the sea shanty, McCarthy turns the entire thing into a big orgy that happens out on a boat, and then it's back to Boston Bay to become the uh, sort of pillar of the community again. It's a great piece and a very rare uh, audio piece from McCarthy. Of course, he's now known very, very widely for his uh, big, dirty performances of him stumbling around with a big paintbrush. Uh, This is an early piece from 1983 as he's making his transition from performance artist into world-class fine artist. And this is the uh, Kipper Kids and their rendition of the Sheik of Araby. The Kipper Kids were a performance group, uh, one of whom went off to actually marry Bette Midler. The piece that we're listening to is from a longer excerpt that was recorded in April of 1978 for KPFA, and it's simply called Singing. It's 14 minutes of a uh, long duet. The Kipper Kids were coming of age in the 1970s. They were deconstructing the high conceptual and minimalist performance stuff and moving right into the heart of popular culture. They were very closely allied with people like Gilbert and George in London who were actually picking up old ditties from the 30s. There was a whole wave of nostalgia in high art uh, circles in the 70s for Hollywood silver screen glamour and the Kipper Kids were right on that cutting edge. The color sinks in and spreads, and even one thread allowed to slip into the puddle opens the floodgate. This is a uh, excerpt from a very long and complicated piece by the California conceptualist Mike Kelly, best known for his big constructions of teddy bears. This is recorded in 1986 at Artist Space in New York City, and it's a collaboration between Mike Kelly and the rock band Sonic Youth. It's called Plato's Cave, Rothko's Chapel, and Lincoln's Profile. It was also part of a uh, piece that ended up being a visual art piece that ended up being collected by the Museum of Modern Art. And the piece here deals with truth versus illusion, and Kelly kind of, in words and images, renders the interior of a cave in a style out of Hollywood B-movie culture. Hovering tears of dense atmospheric color, already close to darkness, lamb in color, primal energies, resonant voids, resonant voids! 
white shoots away from you at 186,000 miles per second. Kelly says when spelunking, sometimes you have to stoop. Sometimes you have to go on all fours. Sometimes even crawl. And then he says to the audience, crawl, worm, as Sonic Youth kicks in with a bunch of noise. a piece by an elder conceptualist, John Baldessari, born in 1931, kind of the godfather of Los Angeles conceptualism. And so what I wanted to do, I was going to call up friends of mine that know a second language, and... He had a great sense of, uh, of humor in his work and continues to. Baldessari, who was trained as a conventional painter, gave up painting, took all his paintings, chopped them up, baked them into cookies, had friends over, and everybody ate them, hence his christening as a conceptual artist. The piece we're listening to is called Second Language, Trying for the Worst with Dorit Sipis, in which uh, John Baldessari asks his friends to say insults in foreign languages and then to explain them. I said, you're so bad, you're so vile, but if you had tadpoles as pets, they'd never turn into frogs. That's terrible. Yeah, the strange thing is, is that these terrible insults aren't what we consider terrible. As a matter of fact, the entire thing is almost bereft of uh, scatological or uh, bodily uh, references. In fact, it all has to do with disease and lack of intelligence. It's very typical of a play in the California conceptualist tradition between humor and language. It's almost, it's like Kelly. It's, it's like the Kipper kids being bad. It's uh, adolescent humor. It's pop humor. And it's 13 minutes worth of people swearing in languages that we don't understand. This is 1969 and the Albright Knox cannot show nudes. She said, that's right, David. And so I came back with a, that is, I didn't come back. She shifted to me, a, a pistoletto. One of the uh, great West Coast figures over the past several decades has been the art critic and poet David Anton. David Anton developed a style called the talk poem, in which he would give these long-winded public talks, and he'd tape them, then he'd go back and transcribe them, and where the silences were, he'd leave spaces, became these very beautiful, free-flowing pieces. this was the case, but I found out that the Whitney Museum was not allowed to show photography. Now, I found this out... The piece we're listening to now is recorded at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles on April 26th of 2002, and it's a piece called How Wide is the Frame? And it's questions of representation and framing, the frame as device. Now, it sounds very dry, but suddenly David Anton finds himself talking about nudity. When I reflected upon this a couple of years later, I realized that for the Albright Knox, sexy nudes are inappropriate for display as art, 
thought Tishan had existed long before. I was wondering, what would happen if they did a Tishan show? <laughs> would they have been forbidden to show any Tishan unclothed woman? You know, and I, then from there, questions of photography and representation. And suddenly you find yourself talking about Los Angeles traffic jams waiting to get into the Getty. John Cage, the contrast between sound and silence. John Dewey, and all the way up to his father-in-law, and people getting drunk and dropping glasses of whiskey at events. And then somehow David brings it all back very brilliantly to the concept of framing. It's like another friend who covers my hand with hers and looks warmly into my eyes, compelling me to acknowledge his sympathy whether I feel like having it or not. After every complaint about my life or my work or the world's injustice, she comforts me. David Anton's wife, Eleanor Anton, born in 1935, is a very prominent California conceptual artist working very closely with notions of myth and mythology. In this monologue about life in Solana Beach, it's called The Battle of the Bluffs, recorded on March 21st of 1977, it's a monologue about life in this little, relatively tranquil coastal town that Eleanor begins to transform, and she begins to talk about the characters in the town, which lead to pure fantasy, a metaphorical, mythological transformation of these everyday characters into kings and queens, and they suddenly don't live in these beach shacks, they live in kingdoms and castles, and they transform into these very extreme situations, and then she inserts herself as a protagonist, and she sees Solano Beach, this beautiful little beach town, as world headquarters for her exile plotting to take over the world. It's a very whimsical and very beautiful piece of Eleanor Anton's imagination. The deposed king raving about the loss of his kingdom to his only remaining servant. My helplessness is brought home to me. We part more depressed than ever. I hate my friend then. Over the past decade or so, what's become very well known, although not known at all during the time, was that there was a world-class improvisational group living in and around Los Angeles in the 1970s, sometimes dovetailing with CalArts. Often, these are folks that were working in Hollywood. They were working in animation studios, and they were watching movies and scoring cartoons, and they took all of this incredible pop culture energy and brought it into experimental music and live performance. They were known as the Los Angeles Free Music Society, and we're listening to a broadcast that they did for KPFK from November 3rd of 1977. It's about 45 minutes long. All sorts of very, very wonderful stuff was done with tape loops, with playfulness, with segments of pop culture mixed up with very high ideas of free improvisation. They were influenced by the mothers of invention. They were influenced by the birds and the West Coast sound, but they took the whole thing and turned it into noise. We'll conclude with what is probably my favorite Los Angeles-based sound work by Los Angeles-based fiction writer Benjamin Wiseman. Adolf Hitler 
was not known for his skiing ability. To be blunt, he was not comfortable on the hill. The incline frightened him. He was a terrible skier. It's called the Hitler Ski Story, and it was recorded in 1994. And it's just a fantastic story about how Adolf Hitler was a lousy skier, told in a very uh, twisted way. He did not take well to the icicles forming on his manicured mustache. He resembled a walrus pup with narrow ice fangs, a look flattering on some gentleman, but on his face, not so at all. It represents yes, everything that the Los the Angeles scene is all about. It's taking politics and reducing it to absurdity. It's taking conceptually based idea and pairing it with very low music, sort of Hollywood filmic music. It's this crash of uh, high and low that makes the sound of Los Angeles from the 1970s and onward, and continuing even into today, extremely special. New York was arid and high and conceptual. Los Angeles had all of the conceptual, but just merged it with Hollywood and grade B sensibility. And what emerged was really a world-class art movement, a world-class literature movement, and poetry movement unto itself. Today, Los Angeles is considered one of the great centers of contemporary art. But what we've been listening to for this podcast was L.A. in its infancy, the sound of L.A. coming into maturity. He never learned English, unlike today's ambitious multilingual Europeans. Like so many lonely men of that period... And that concludes another Uberweb Poetry Foundation podcast, all avant-garde, all the time. I'm Kenneth Goldsmith. All of these materials can be found on Uberweb at ubu.com. <laughs>